welcome to Mountain Whispers Podcast. This is a show exploring the deeper lessons we learn from the outdoors. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Here I chat to interesting people within mountain culture about the way in which the outdoors transforms them, their most vivid experiences, and how themes like risk, fear, flow, awe, and deeper connection show up in their relationship to the outdoors. In this episode, I'm chatting to Taylor Godbear. Taylor is a mountain athlete, entrepreneur, and writer, and just an incredibly wise and fun human being to talk to. She spends her winters here in British Columbia, uh, but summers chasing the surf through California and Mexico. In exploring the deeper lessons that Taylor has learned from the outdoors, we talk about many things. We talk about her journey going pro, going big from park to backcountry, uh, injuries and risk, and what it means or the difference between being conscious versus unconscious of your level of competency when it comes to going big and taking risks on a snowboard. We talk about how intuition and fear show up when it comes to assessing risk. And one of my favorite things to explore on this project is the way that adventure sports can be formed as an intentional practice in our development. The same way you'd have a disciplined practice around meditation or, or, or yoga. And, and Taylor does a great job speaking to this. She shares the habits and routines she has that allow her to be more present and in tune with herself in risky, high-consequence situations, such as how she uses breath for upregulation and downregulation of her nervous system, as well as the process of training your attention like a muscle. In high consequence situations, so often, if you're thinking about what could possibly go wrong, you're psyching yourself out and increasing the chances of that actually going wrong. But what Taylor shares is an interesting perspective on how being present in a way that is focused on the very best possible outcome we're aiming for, but also absolutely prepared for how to react if you find yourself confronting the worst possible outcome. It's the first time I've heard someone articulate it like that. On the theme of adventure as an intentional practice, we talk about the art of the sin. How so often we're more comfortable doing a lot more risky things in the outdoors and less comfortable taking risks in, say, relationships or work settings and how we can cultivate the muscle of sending it and pushing past fear in those aspects as well. Taylor also shares her experience in community building and the power of the retreat for facilitating transformation. Talks about how food plays into that and, and, and the conscious practice we can develop around food. As you can tell, we talk about many, many things. Taylor's incredibly wise, but also very articulate and, and full of life. I had so much fun speaking to her. So without further ado, here is Taylor Godbeer. So I'm here with Taylor Godbeer. Taylor, welcome to Mountain Whispers. Oh, thanks for having me, Tim. Mm-hmm. And so you're in uh, California right now. You spent the, the, the summer in, in Mexico. And I know um, one of the many things you do is uh, as a, a mountain athlete, backcountry snowboarder. I'm curious, what does the, the seasons look like for you? What, what does this fall season usually look like for you? Um, well, I spend the winters in Whistler and Pemberton, 
chasing snow. Um, and then the other half of the year, my partner is a surfer and his POW season in Mexico is the summer. So we kind of split time. That's why we head down to Mexico so that he can chase the big waves. And um, yeah, no, no complaints. That's an amazing place to be too. And I also love surfing. So that's a really nice balance um, for me, for my body and my mind, you know, have the big higher adrenaline um, time in the winter and then just a little slower, slower pace in the summer. Cool. And then what about the seasons in between? What does spring and, and fall typically look like for you? Um, you know what? It just totally depends on the conditions in the year. Um, I really like to climb in the spring a little bit and then the same in the fall. just depends how quickly it starts snowing and if there's waves. Um, our lives are very much dictated by the weather, which, as we know, likes to change on the daily. So it always looks a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Cool. So th- this project is to explore the, the deeper lessons we learn from the outdoors and as I mentioned, there's, there's many different ways that we can go, but I think a useful place to start would be to learn more about how you fell in love with the mountains or how you, how you fell in love with the outdoors. Um, yeah. Where to begin? How far do you want to go back? <laughs> as, as far as it feels. We've got an hour and a half. Um, hour and a half. Okay. We won't take all the time up with that, but, um, yeah, as a kid, I was always drawn to the outdoors anytime I had any free time between I did competitive gymnastics as a kid and a lot of other extracurricular activities. But um, whenever there was space, I always wanted to be outside, climbing trees, playing in the mud, exploring. Um, my dad liked to fish. So as a kid, I really looked up to him. So we, we did a lot of fly fishing and hiking and going to find bears in Alberta um a little bit of camping so that was probably like my first brush with adventure and then yeah after that just um snowboarding wise I think we did a a field trip in about grade five or grade six to go snowboarding I grew up in Tawasin that's just outside of Vancouver where you take the ferry uh, to go to the island and um yeah, it, it was really fun. I can't say that I went up snowboarding the first time and loved it. I think I just fell a lot and was pretty frustrated. <laughs> um, there was a little bit of a gap. And then in high school, my best friend, he was really into snowboarding. And I was having a really hard time at high school. I was getting pretty bullied. And um, home life was really rough, too. And it just became like this almost excuse to to leave school he was really smart and he had done his high school that at the very end he had every other day off um I can't say that I was as organized as that but I would skip school with him to go snowboarding because he just was going after this dream of becoming a professional athlete and I just kind of tagged along and it it became an outlet for me and a place that at the time without any self-reflection it was just um then it was like an escape, but it was also just a connection for me to something that brought me happiness and brought me joy. And then after that, um, I actually moved to Whistler. I got to thank him so much. He, he really has no idea how much he's inspired me, but he doesn't snowboard anymore. He owns a, he owns a, an environmental friendly junk removal company that's become actually like extremely successful. And, um, he, 
moved to Whistler and he's like, just move up here for like a year, come try it out for fun. And I really wanted to travel or go to school. And what I wanted to be was a, <laughs> of all things, I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. Um, and I wanted to take a year off before I was going to start getting my studies in order to do that. And I moved to Whistler for a year, just for a year. And now, and that was in 2006. So I just, I fell in love with snowboarding and fell in love with the culture and fell in love with community and just being out in the outdoors. And it, things kind of just snowballed after that. I started riding park because that's kind of what all the friends did and just kept getting hurt repeatedly, uh, lots of concussions. Um, my injury has never really been knees, it's been elbows. So lots of dislocated elbows. Um, the contest scene was never really my jam. Um, and I guess, yeah, I fell a lot. So I was getting hurt. And at that time, I'd actually picked up a sponsor. And it was my Billabong team manager at the time. And he's like, hey, if you want longevity in your career, you're gonna have to like make a shift. And um, I don't, I don't know exactly what it was. But I bought a snowmobile for like a $1,000 from a friend, this like, fridge of a snowmobile. And I remember going out there and being out there and just after that it was like any sunny day that's just where I wanted to be um and yeah it's just evolved evolved from there and now it's part of my life I can't imagine not doing it wow was, it, was there a point a, a distinct point where you knew this was going to be the thing that uh this was better than being an orthopedic surgeon or did that just naturally evolve honestly it naturally evolved and as I sit with more self-reflection as I've gotten older, the principle behind being an orthopedic surgeon was I wanted to help people. Um, I looked at like injury as maybe like, um, like a governor to people being able to do what they wanted to do. And I just wanted to help people. So as a kid, I wanted to be a vet or a doctor. Cause I just, I think we're kind of told as, as younger kids, we don't, if we're not open in our families to all these other modalities, that's kind of like the old school thing, right? Those are the people that help you, you know, You're the doctors, the dentists, the lawyers. So um, I think that's why my compass was set that way is I just, I wanted to help others and I wanted them um, to do what they love. In a similar line, can you, can you tell us about uh, a time when you started to feel, I guess, the, uh, I, I'm trying to align uh, your, uh, spiritual path as well when, when that started aligned to the outdoors as well oh I don't know if people are going to turn the podcast off after this but <laughs> um as a kid I used to like talk to trees and talk to animals and just had like like a very strong spiritual connection um not to be confused with religious um connection I think that's where people can kind of get um uncomfortable but just a connection to something greater as in nature is alive um I've always seen nature as alive and in com like communion and conversation with us. So I just think that it's not something that we question as a kid, you know, you see kids playing in nature and having, let's even just say like imaginary friends, their creativity um, floodgates are open. And it's like, as we get older, we start to shut that down. And then if we choose this path and to continue to, um, I'd say that that kind of keeps us more childlike, right? It's keeping that connection and, and being open to experience. So I think that all of us are always 
connected on in a greater way to nature. Um, I think that we just, we kind of forget. Yeah. I, I probably shouldn't use the S word. Maybe a better word is an intentional conscious practice. Cause I mean, part of this project is trying to create a compelling argument to even the most uh, rational people of the value of an intentional practice, what, what one can actually pick up from other. Are you, um, um, are you talking about like, um, like yoga meditation? Like, is that, yeah, I remember. Exactly. It's funny. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So as, as I, I wasn't conscious of it at the time, but when I was getting hurt, I wanted to keep going to school because there was part of me that was like, because I'd never seen anyone succeed as a professional athlete. Cause that just wasn't what my family did. They weren't ski people. We didn't, I just didn't even know that was a thing. I just saw friends getting free stuff and I was like, Oh, it's like a good way to like save money. Like this equipment's expensive. I didn't understand the path of which there are many, there's not one way to do anything. Um, but I kind of just like fell into that, but then I kept getting hurt. And so because in my mind, I was like, there's so much more to life than just snowboarding. And I had actually put up this like limiting belief that I could never, ever make it as an athlete. I always worked at other jobs and I always had other incomes coming in and still tapping into the same as the orthopedic surgeon direction. I was like, you know what, maybe I'm going to be, I wanted to be a high end life coach, which I also didn't know was a thing, but there was this guy that used to come. I used to work in bartend at Earl's. He used to come with his clients and he'd like help them order food. And I just hear these conversations he was having. And that's what he did. He traveled with clients. Um, He motivated them to do their workouts. He helped them make better life decisions for their health. And I was like, okay, how do I do that? So I started building up online courses when I would get hurt. So which is so weird to be doing when you had a concussion. <laughs> there wasn't, I feel like there wasn't any education around that then. It was a struggle. But when I did have like, you know, dislocated elbows or broken bones, then that's what I would do. I would do online school. So I started doing weight training, personal training, some nutrition courses. And then I was like, oh, you know, I should add yoga to my resume because I didn't have something happening one spring. And I'd started to get into yoga and I had, this teacher who is still one of my number one mentors, her name's Julia McCabe. She has really, really amazing online um, courses um, and uh, classes. <clears throat> of course, they're best in person, but you know, with the landscape of the world because of this now, if you're anywhere in the world, you can sign and do her courses. But she used to teach this like really badass like power class. Like you'd walk in and she's just like, okay, down dog. And I was really heavy into training then as I was going to school for it. I knew it supported snowboarding. So I used to use her classes as my off day, which wasn't an off day. It was like really challenging. And then as my journey into yoga continued, um, there's a woman, her name's Tina James. Um, She, I don't know if you've attended any of her classes, but I would coin her as a very spiritual person. And I hadn't been around that, but I remember going to her class and we, she would do mantras and chanting. And I was like, it made me really uncomfortable, but then I felt myself being drawn to go to these classes and I didn't understand why. And I would say that was kind of like my toe dip into things. 
And then I signed up for Julia's um, 200 hour teacher training. Gosh, that's probably nearly 10 years ago. And I remember going and every morning we would do meditation, breath work, chanting. And I was just kind of weirded out by it, but I was there for three weeks and I realized that I was craving that more than the actual physical practice, which she teaches an amazing physical practice, but it was the breath work and the mantra and the, and all of this other stuff that was in a different language too, that I found myself singing the songs like unconsciously when I was surfing or uh, just being really drawn to that. And so what I went for a little check mark on my resume for that I could show my clients became something that opened me up to all these other modalities that there are out there. That's interesting. Cause it's funny. My entrance to the similar world was trying to become more effective and productive. Like I, I started meditating cause I heard it. It, 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 it helps you. It helps clear your mind, makes you more productive. And what I've learned over this time is that um, any, by far the most effective way to become more effective as a human is to go into that more uh i i guess follow what we'd call spiritual lineages of being an effective human if that makes sense you know like any productivity hacks if you go below the surface um that there's a more powerful way to understand and change your self-limiting beliefs by using a, a lineage that's been practiced for hundreds or thousands of years yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, if we were to break it down into what feels more approachable for some people than using the word spiritual is we're really just balancing out our central nervous systems. We're mm. like calming our central nervous systems. Breath work does that. Yoga does that. Walking in nature, sitting in nature. Um, we're really just coming back to baseline and then increasing the threshold of what you can handle. And 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 going back in to sim- what in, you, sim- in simplicity <laughs> exactly and going back to of what you mentioned that's about so much wide wider than that but really i feel like that's what we're doing right mm-hmm. I, I was going to say and going back to what you mentioned at, at, at the start of this riff of talking to trees um something that gets me is the most powerful medical con- technology is placebo and um placebo is is largely driven by what you could call imaginal forces which is your your ability to use your mind to to influence your, your your body and and visualization is an example of that you know talk, talking to trees or communing with nature is a way of bringing to life um, the the world that we know is alive around us. Mm-hmm. Totally, I mean, it's even like spontaneous remission. I don't think it's spontaneous <laughs> remission. It's like the same as whatever they want to call the placebo effect. It's just, I think we've forgotten how powerful we are as beings and as humans and how important it is to, you know, think beautifully Mm. and to clear out any clutter that might be in the way because it does impact us and it impacts everything around us from the trees to the people around us to our day to day. Mm. So, so going back to the, the snowboarding though, so you moved from park into into to backcountry um wh- while um i guess there there is less chance of of getting hurt uh, than than park 
uh, th- there's still a large element of uh, risk there. How did you, even during park and then into the transition to backcountry, what, what was your relationship with fear and risk during that time? Oh, I think the problem that I probably had with the park is I, I, because I came in so late without really knowing, I don't think I had the fundamentals really for air awareness. And I, so I would get hurt a lot. Um, and I, I didn't really have, I don't know. I've never had it checked out, but like my fear response just like, wasn't very high. And I think a lot, a lot of people, you know, were, were easy to, look at maybe things that happened to us as children and being like, Oh, wow, that happened to me. It's like a victimhood thing. But I think the further that you move along to healing, you start to see it as like, wow, those were like some things that gave me a little bit of a superpower, right? It's like our big greatest challenges can reap us like the most amazing rewards if we're able to like transmute that energy. And I think that because I grew up in a very unstable living situation and you know, you spend so much time at school and that was really unstable. I was used to having this like really um, on central nervous system and like not, I would say for longevity wise, a good place, but I was really, really good at being in uncomfortable situations because that was kind of my baseline, right? Um, I think if you look at a lot of very successful professional athletes, not everyone but a lot of them have some pretty crazy stories. Um, a lot of skateboarders like have some really wild childhoods. And I think that all lends to being able to like be in those situations. It's like, well, what is comfort? What, you know, what's your normal? Um, and I was, I was pretty sendy as a kid. I'd be like, Oh, I'll hit the big jump. I like probably had no business hitting that same with surfing and, um, paddling out places. I had no business being, um, and now I've, I've kind of found more of a, a center with that. Yeah. More, I was, I was unconsciously incompetent is what I was <laughs> in a lot of spaces. Um, and I think, you know, I would like to say as I've um, evolved as a person that I'm a lot more conscious of, of the risks that I'm taking. And there's, once you get into the backcountry, there's a lot of things that, that helped me and inspired me to change my lifestyle but a, a lot of it was just like there there's no space for that in my personal opinion um you're not just sending it's it's very calculated there's people that there's i know there's like a couple different types of people there's people that are just full send and then but i think that i know that the people that i surround myself with the decisions we're making are calculated and they're very much in alignment of that connection to nature you know, the mountains do speak. They do give you signs for when things aren't safe and when you should retreat. And um, yeah, you need to have that deeper connection, which comes from being out there. Mm. I, I love that. And and I just, you covered so much there. So playing back to what you, you told me at the start, was that your upbringing you said gave you a a high i guess tolerance for stress and uncertainty Mm -hmm. which which flexed that muscle to be able to to handle the uncertainty or tolerance or um so you said unconsciously incompetent is that you didn't even have that voice in your head telling you this is dangerous you shouldn't do this 
yeah, it was more, it was a lot lower than a lot of people, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, and in that space, it obviously wasn't serving me. I was getting hurt all the time. Now I know I was consciously, I'm conscious that I was incompetent. (laughs) (laughs) Because most people, uh, let's say someone who, who starts taking on a bike park or jumps, um, after their brain is developed, they're hyper-conscious of incompetence and that flinch is what stops them from sending it, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like when I was younger, I was, it was the opposite. Yeah. And now I've, I've tuned in more. I think I was also just disassociated from myself Mm. completely like dissociated and just like, Oh, that looks fun. I'm going to try, you know, I kept getting hurt. (laughs) Mm -hmm. My body was speaking and it was like, you are, you need to shift gears here. So could you describe to me the difference between, let's say, at, on the professional scene, the difference between full senders and people who are very conscious of their competency? Well, I can't speak for I can't speak for anybody. I can only share my personal experience, but um, yeah, I don't know. I just I used to roll up to the park and see something that I felt like I could, I watched someone hit it and I would try. Um, it wasn't like I was doing all the things I needed to, to be like, okay, you need to go this fast or pop this hard to make the landing. Um, it was almost like I was like skipping steps, if that makes sense. So without having someone to be like, Hey, you should, hit the five and 10 foot jumps and like learn that trick on there before you go and you hit this bigger jump. I, you know, now there's coaches and teams and like mentors in that direction, but I was coming from someone that didn't grow up skiing, didn't grow up snowboarding, implanted myself into this community of like extremely competent people. And I was trying to keep up. So I did, I just didn't know any better. Right. Um, so I just, that's just kind of what happened. (laughs) Mm. Um, if you wanted to go the scientific route, there are people, I think it was, um, in Alex Honnold's movie where they, didn't they say something about maybe his, um, it wasn't his pineal gland, but there's a part of his brain that doesn't generate fear. Yeah. It just functions a little differently but then if you listen to interviews and you read anything about him he's extremely calculated and i think Mm -hmm. that just becomes the more that we learn you know um lots of kids are like that i think you know you watch them jump off the back of the couch and i think that's why they're a little bit more rubbery they can take the falls and then as we grow and as we learn we're like okay well if i want to do this i don't want to be hurt and if i fall i might get hurt so let's just start approaching things differently the reason I I dig into it is because I think there's something very transformative about having a relationship with risk because it's it it's often um, and and you described it well with the like the conscious versus unconscious competency and knowing what goes into completing it successfully with the the minimal amount of risk. Well- I feel like what we're doing right now is breaking down risk takers. But if you wanted to separate it between, I think there's kind of two different types of 
people in general. There's people that want to live in this comfortable direction and there's people that want to live in a more risk-taking manner. So I look at our world. Everyone wants everything as convenient as possible and they don't want to have to work for it. And you can order anything from your computer, have it delivered. At least down here in California, you can watch the truck on a map drive and, and drop it off at your house. Um, we have the most comfortable beds. We have everything is just about comfort. Um, versus maybe like a more direction of like risk taking where I think maybe some of us are hardwired to want to move towards the direction of discomfort because we know what it feels like to overcome challenges and fears and limiting beliefs and pushing past whatever that line is that you have personally for yourself. And for me, that's what it means to live is to be past that. And you know, you can do that on a mountain, but you can also do that in your day-to-day -day life. Like the fear response is no different from dropping into a line that might be past your threshold and might be, you know, at your edge versus like having a challenging conversation in a relationship and moving maybe through an emotional roadblock, right? Or the same in the spiritual world. If, if you want to move past anything that's like deep within your subconscious, is going to be hard and that is where fear is right so i think if i think that's maybe what you were trying to ask me was was those two avenues um you know do you want to live in comfort or do you want to live and move through what it is that's your hurdle and your hiccup so that you can feel what it feels like to be in that expansive space Exactly. And it's, it's playing, I guess, with that threshold of fear. And, and I love that you, you brought it into other examples outside the mountains. Cause often uh, situations like even just say being vulnerable with my partner, I sometimes view that as a send of like, I can feel that block and I don't want to do it, but I'm just going to send, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to be vulnerable, you know? And I think oh, I that's a really powerful totally. mindset. Oh yeah. I find like, I have to remind myself constantly that what, and this is where I, I look at it is, um, you know, I go out there cause it's fun, but one of the biggest, biggest allures for me is like, we're constantly seeking out discomfort and then we're able to come back into life if we're consciously doing it <laughs> to be like, okay, I moved through that fear and I was in chaos out there in the mountains and I was totally fine. Why is it when I need to have that challenging conversation to maybe ask to have a need met or set a boundary is it so challenging, but it's the same thing. I just think we forget. <laughs> it, it absolutely is. Yeah. <clears throat> Developing a meaningful relationship with, with chaos. I'm curious how we, we've been talking about risk. Um, fear is of a, a similar line. How, how do you relate to fear in the mountains? How do I relate to fear in the mountains? Um, there's a few amazing athletes and I've, I'm just going to kind of share what I've heard them say, because I think it really lands, but um, there's like real fear and then there's boogeyman fear. And I think it's Jimmy Chin that talks about that. You know, there's like, there's real fears that you need to be aware of and they're very important and they're part of our, our response, but we need fear. If we didn't have fear, we would die. There was actually, I can't remember what book it was. I'll look it up for you um, so you can add it to the notes. But they talk about a study that they did and they removed part of the monkey brain that actually isn't, we need it for fear. 
and they removed it and all the monkeys died. <laughs> like we need fear in order to survive. It's that constant fear of things that actually aren't potentially going to kill us. If that makes mm. sense, you know, yeah. that like constant stress, that constant cortisol hit that like it hurts us and it hurts our bodies. So when I'm in the mountains, if I am fear feeling fearful, I'm checking in. Is this real fear? Am I nervous because this is just a little, am I pushing my edge or should I be fearful? And is this like a little knock on the window to be like, Hey, conditions aren't stable. You should be here. That might pop. Did you see that? Right. So it's always like weighing in. Is it, um a, a nice way of explaining it too is like um and as it relates to day-to-day life is like is it my ego talking or is it like i call it like my higher self you know is this intuition or is this fear and yeah it, you know and i i personally find that intuition is more of like a whisper and fear is like it's like yelling at you if that makes sense it's like there's a subtlety and then there's like an urgency, but not a positive urgency. Does that make sense? That, that does make sense. And it, and it makes me realize I, I'm, uh, I'm still in the process of being able to distinguish between those two. I love how you, you described that because um, so often, let's say when I'm in the mountains, I, I can't tell, uh, is this my edge? Is this this loud fear yelling at me that I need to, to push against? Or is this my intuition telling me that, say, my proprioception isn't, on today and i'm putting myself at risk or that like conditions aren't aren't good for pushing my limit today yeah there's a lot of there's a big checklist to go through and and oftentimes i notice when overthinking and i witness it in partners in the mountain too when overthinking starts it's usually like maybe a time to step down there's there's that's when there's like a lack of clarity um another example that i feel like is really a good example in like normal day-to-day life is you watch someone um, say they break up in a relationship that wasn't unhealthy. And then you watch them ping pong back and forth. If they made the right decision, there's like a lack of grounding and a lack of clarity and a lack of resonance with the heart and just ping ponging back and forth. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And you watch it happen to people in the mountains too. Oh, should I hit that line? Maybe I shouldn't. Oh, what about that? Personally, as soon as that happens, it's like impossible to decipher where the information is coming from. Is mm. it my intuition? Is it my ego? Do you, because have... you don't please Go continue. Ahead. I was going to oh, say, no. I'm, is I'm there not... particular, <laughs> is there particular rituals that you have to help uh, ensure you can drop into that flow state of clarity uh, where you can identify the difference between intuition and, and fear? Um, I mean, I would almost replace flow state with just the practice of being present and being present and having a very stable central nervous system, like we talked about. And for me, that means um, obviously the physical preparation so that you're not totally gassed when you're standing on top of a line. Um, So you can be more clear and in your head as possible. There's no getting around the physical suffering sometimes. That's also part of what you push through. Um, but more so than ever, it's that mental fortitude, um, which comes from, I do a lot of breath work, 
there's an online platform called Our Breath Collective that I, I do that every day along with my own personal breath work practice and meditating. I meditate every day, minimum 10 minutes um, to an hour and a half. That's huge. That's changed my life. Um, it was really, really hard to get into the rhythm. I'm not going to lie. And there are days when I don't want to do it, but it's gone easier. And now I can't imagine not having that in my day. Um, breath work, meditation. Um, I mean, just being in nature. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and like checking the boxes of like what, I need to do that keeps me that fills me up and for everyone I think that's so different but being able to recognize that I personally need adventure in my life that helps me stay grounded that when I'm checking that box then I'm on my path and when I start to get a little agitated or anxious I'm like oh I've been sitting inside too much I haven't been taking care of myself in that way um and then to be even more like really hone in and like the moment if I'm standing on top of a line, just the same as like sitting out back. If you're surfing, it's like, if it's big and it's pumping, I'm probably not chatting. And this comes from recommendation from my partner and it's helped me tremendously. I'm breathing up. So if I go for that wave and I crash, I'm more oxygenated and my central nervous is more calm. So I'm using less oxygen as I'm being held underneath the water, but I'm like preparing. So I brought that into the mountains when I'm hiking. I'm very conscious of how I'm breathing. I'm constantly conscious of like what's happening within my body that gives us cues. Like when we're really scared, we hold our breath. We tense up. We start bringing, we start breathing like really, really shallow into our, into our lungs um, there's tons of science around what that does to you. Another amazing book um, is by James Nestor called Breath. Uh, I don't know if you've read that book. It's incredible. Um, you know, breathing into your chest versus low belly breathing. And just coming back to those practices in and all day, you know, like if you're driving in traffic, someone cuts you off or you're rushed or like today I haven't had a coffee, my first coffee in like a month and a half. And I'm like, oh, I got to breathe. <laughs> Um, it translates into everything. So if I'm standing on top of a line, I'm just being as present as possible and calming down what I need to with the tools that I have. And I'd say breath is the biggest one. And then also mentally, what am I thinking and what am I focusing on? Um, This has come up a lot with snowmobiling. There's a, I feel like it's such a committing sport too when you've got to um, put trails in and punch lines in and it's fast, right? There's like a big motorized thing. And I started saying, I noticed on my GoPro, which was a little bit, <laughs> it's comical, but I'll say to myself, yes, I can. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Because instead of saying, I don't know if I can't, I don't know if I'm going to make it to the corner. I don't know if I'm strong enough. What if I hit that tree? I'm creating all these other potential things that could happen. And as it relates to risk in any part of life, but I think obviously the mountains is such a good example is, you know, where you put energy, where energy, where you focus, your energy is where it goes. Right. And as it relates to risk management, it's, you got to think about best case scenario, but it's also incredibly important to think about the worst case scenario because you need to be prepared if 
you know, shit hits the fan. You, it can't be a surprise. Like, oh no, that happened. What do we do? You need to be like, okay, that happened. This is what we do. And then you move backwards and decide, is the risk taking worth it? So I go through all that in my head and it usually happens pretty fast now, but then I'm like, okay, best case scenario, because I'm going for it and I'm committed. This is what I'm focusing on. And yes, I can do it and start dropping into the body and be like, okay, instead of wasting my energy, literally like throwing it away towards worst case scenario, I come back to center and be like, okay, what do I need to do in order for that to happen in order to follow through with the positive best outcome? Um, say you're hiking on a ridge instead of saying like, don't fall, don't fall, don't fall. Oh my God, don't fall. If you fall, you're going to die. You're like, okay, I've committed to walking on this ridge, right foot, left foot, core engaged, knees bent, look where you're going. Right. That just, that trajectory just changed. Instead of being in this like heightened awareness, but not in a positive way. Um, Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I find on on that last one, I find there's a there's an art between one managing your attention to say fully commit to that line uh, on the ridge, let's say, but at the same time um, keeping present. If one of these rocks goes, I need to know exactly what to do next. You know exactly. So you have your plan in place, but when you're going, you need to be fully committed to the best case scenario. And then you can change gears if you need to. Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean. You're not like drawing down a line and being like, everything's going to be good. I'm committed. I'm going. You're like, okay, I'm going from point A to point B, turning here, letting myself go here, da, 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 da. But if that pops there, I go here. If that happens, that goes there. And then also being cognizant, if that pops, am I going to go over those rocks? Am I willing to take that risk? Mm, And I can see it so... It's also, it's no easy feat to manage that. And I can see how an intentional practice around managing your central nervous system and also managing your attention is how you're able to stay fully present while also aware of the contingencies if things don't go as planned. Absolutely. And I I personally, for me, that's one of my biggest draws from meditation is there's a funny misconception that you're just sitting still, you know, you're, you're sitting still not thinking. No, (laughs) I mean, most of the time for me, meditation is really hard work and some days are more challenging than others, but it's the way that I practice meditating is coming back to breath and low belly breathing and letting these thoughts come in and witnessing them and then letting them go, but not pushing them away. Um, I did a Vipassana practice, which totally changed my life. um, And that's, kind of like really how I meditate if I'm not visualizing um, what I want to bring into the life and create, or if I'm not wanting to look at a discomfort. So there's kind of like, for me, there's those three kind of paths of meditation. Um, yeah. And it, it's, and it's a practice and I have definitely not mastered it. <laughs> I, I honestly think meditation is, is most similar to, to something like slacklining and that like, it is like very engaging, but also very subtle in terms of um, the, um, let's say the the sensitivity you have to have to engaging specific parts of your mind almost, or, or that's mm-hmm. like how I would describe 
the nuance that is there to slacklining. Most people, let's say someone begins slacklining without like a strong sense of balance. You're like, I stand up and I fall off. And that's kind of the introduction to meditation. I like try and focus on my breath. Three breaths later, I'm thinking about something else. And then with time, you start to feel that there's actually muscles in your mind that you can engage to some degree. Totally. And the body's also speaking, which is a different tangent, but just the idea of like somatic therapy and um, constantly our body's telling us things and our environment's telling us things. Uh, somatic is as it relates to the body, but mm. um, you know, like a, a tightness in a knee and breathing into that or a tightness in the head and not always, always looking for like an answer of what that is, but just like what happens when you give something attention um, and then how it dissipates, which translates into being on the mountain where in a place of fear, we're all different. Where do you hold that in your body? So now you feel that, okay, how do I give that space without pushing it away and then see what happens? It's like a nagging injury. You just can't, you can't ignore it. It's just, it comes back, it comes back, it comes back with a vengeance and then it really hits you. And we see that with any type of practice or lifestyle change or sorry, lifestyle that's not really serving us. It's a whisper, it's a whisper, it's a knock on the door and then it just knocks you over, right? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I think the, the idea is to like not get knocked over. <laughs> Maybe yeah. hear like the knock on the door in the beginning. Before we move on, I'd love to just uh, double back on on breath work because I um, I, I continue to hear and, and experience to some degree myself the, the, the degree that it, it influences my central nervous system. But I know that there is some science to upregulation versus downregulation and um, how that's managed. You, you mentioned our breath collective, um, but is there, can you walk us through, say, the difference between breath work for upregulation let's say when you're wanting to get get psyched and when the the surface pumping versus down regulation when you're really wanting to to calm yourself well i would use the down regulating when i'm hyped to go surfing (laughs) okay and what's the difference Um, in terms of like in breath versus out breath um for upregulating and down regulating with a breathwork practice or is it all the do you have the same practice for both upregulation and down regulation um, you know what? Personally, I am not a master of the science behind it, um, which is why I really loved that book because he taps into that. And my biggest takeaways um, were the importance of nasal breathing, how most of us don't breathe through our nose. Um, there's actually chemicals released when we do nasal breathe that can help us um, oxygen our bodies, oxygenate our bodies more efficiently. Um, increase our immune system and and we're seeing it just by the way that the body is evolving um, anatomically is we're we're losing space to even breathe (laughs) Um, a big takeaway that I took from that book which is going to sound so crazy but it's really like changed the way that we sleep is sometimes taking a piece of tape and taping your mouth when you're sleeping because you're unconsciously sleeping while you're breathing and we're sleeping better, more soundly. Um, and that book gets into all of the all of the science behind it. But that's like you get to practice for like eight hours a day just doing that. And I'd say like I don't think I'm ever trying to like hype up. I'm never trying to like breathe up in a way that 
gets me like super energized and jazzed other than maybe if I'm let's say I'm waking up tired in the morning or I don't know if anyone else ever gets these but kind of like a dream hangover you know even nightmare you kind of feel a little funky when you wake up um is certain types of breath that I guess yeah you would say are more energizing and invigorating those are like more sharp punchy exhales um in the yoga tradition in pranayama they call that uh kapalabhati breathing which is like a really punchy exhale to increase blood flow energy and then that also like starts to tap into your chakras which ones are you um initiating but and in that our breath collective they actually like give a little dialogue of as to like little write-up as to what you know what you're going to be working on and I think it's really cool for people to try the different ones out and then you start to just the same as if you need to you have an injury and you decide okay do I need to go get an x-ray or I need to go to the physio or maybe I need massage or maybe acupuncture is better then you can start to tap into okay which one works for me which one do I need to work on longer um and then you can go down the direction of like breath hold training for free diving or big wave surfing and that that's also similar but different right so I don't want to butcher the science but a lot of us think that when our bodies start to panic it's because of a lack of oxygen but it's actually a co2 buildup so you can look up like increasing co2 tolerance or increasing um, oxygen uptake which are are different practices sure sure that's yeah that's super useful i know I'm, I'm familiar with james Ness's book i i haven't read it so i absolutely will after yeah but even just like um co2 tables or oxygen tables for um like free diving because it's really important to train both of them um but personally i'm just always trying to breathe through my nose and Mm -hmm. breathe in my belly and then um doing these like more scheduled different practices allows me to see like what i can what i need to work on um it's really cool too you can schedule personals with some of the founders and they'll see how you're breathing and be like, wow, you're not breathing into part of your chest, or maybe you need to work on um, creating more flexibility and range with your diaphragm. Or do you know what I mean? It's not just Mm -hmm. breath. It's like creating more space in our our whole chest cavity and just being conscious of where the breath's moving. Mm. I think it's um, also a lifelong practice. Absolutely. (laughs) That's what I found my, um, Um, it's like a neuro for me, there's almost like a neuromuscular engagement of like working my diet, like working my diaphragm or remembering to activate my diaphragm to belly breathe. Yeah. And I think everybody's so different. Like I have a really strong belly breath, but a lot of times I don't breathe up into my chest Mm -hmm. and a lot of people only breathe into their chest. So it's just kind of tweaking that um, and just the same as you'd go to the gym to like maybe work on strengthening something else. I think we're all different. Um, And then you can also move into like the really, um, I don't want to call it psychedelic, but more like transformational style breath work, which is like conscious connected breathing, which means the inhale and the exhale are connected. There's no pause in between. And then you're breathing for like 20 minutes to 45 minutes to an hour. And it's said that, I mean, I've experienced it personally. Um, I don't know if you've done any of those breathwork practices, but they can be extremely, extremely transformational. 
I, I've never <laughs> found it personally transformational. <laughs> it's always just been a really hard workout and, and tingly mm. on my fingers and lips. Mm. So yeah, I, I feel like I haven't had the, 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 the breakthrough, the transcendent part of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll get there. You'll get there. <laughs> um, well, I don't know. It's just it's just like one door that people like to take mm-hmm. in terms of like um uh transcendental experience. Mm. Um I have a few friends that that's what they teach full time. Um and the stories that they have of people moving through traumas and moving through limiting beliefs and just like really accessing a, a deep subconscious state has been amazing. But like mm. I said, it's it's one door. There's a million different ways and everybody's different. So, Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, that kind of opens the – one of the, the parts of this project is exploring um, the, the avenues to what I'd call peak states that allow for transformation, you know, and, and um, adventure is, is one of those, like you mentioned. It's, it's a key part of your practice, as is – conscious attentional work through meditation as is conscious breath work through through holotrope they're all different access to that state of mind where we we have full access or large access to our, to our, our consciousness we're fully centered with where we are in this world and where we want to go and we're able to identify like the story is holding us back you know yeah and i think the breath is the funny thing is we do it all the time and we do it unconsciously and we don't really think about it how much have we been breathing just sitting here (laughs) Mm -hmm. um and we just have the power to like transform our day-to-day and really balance our central nervous system just by tweaking that that's Mm. so empowering to have that to be able to do that um i think the same goes with you know the food that we eat Mm. what are we putting in our bodies we most of us are lucky enough to eat three times a day. And that's a conscious decision that we make. Um, I'm assuming most of the people listening to this podcast live in with access to healthy food. Um, you go into certain parts of the world. That's, that's not always the case, but it's right there. <laughs> you just don't pick up the, the crap. <laughs> Is there specific ways that you make a conscious practice out of out of the food you eat. Cause I, I think about how um, I guess when you, you can, you can find deeper connection through the, the food you're eating or you can mindlessly eat it. And, and, and there's a difference, right? Totally. I mean, there's science that backs it that says that I feel like I'm a broken record saying your central nervous system again, but um, you know, you have parasympathetic and sympathetic your parasympathetic and your sympathetic nervous system. One is the fight, flight, freeze and um, activities and moving, 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 go, go, go. Um, The other one is for rest and digest and sleep and rest, digest, sleep. Um, I'm super guilty of this. It's something I'm consciously working on, but running around and doing errands and eating on the go. And like, that's not the central nervous system avenue you want to be going down for your body to be able to absorb and really utilize what you're putting into it. Um, So just bringing consciousness around that is like taking 15 seconds to sit before you eat and sit while you're eating and give for me, what I do is I give gratitude for everything that brought that food there. So let's say it's like a, a salad 
I, you know, I thank the soil, I thank the sun, I thank the water, the air, the farmers, whoever made that, just to drop in and be like, all of that was necessary in order for that to be there. And it just helps me drop in and slow down. And there are, there's signs that backs that, that we're able to absorb the vitamins and the nutrients and better utilize everything that we're putting in when we're in that state, when we're in that um, present moment. Mm, I absolutely, yeah, can can see how that works. And at, at minimum, it's um, so like at a functional level, it allows you to to better absorb it. But even just at a let's say an intentional practice level, the um, that act of gratitude also allows you to to deeper connect to to the world that you're living in. You know, absolutely. I think in in all that we do, mm-hmm. if we're living in this space of if everyone could just remember a moment where they felt deep gratitude and then how did, how did their day unfold from that space? But we can tap into that all the time. Mm. (laughs) A a lot of these modalities that we've been talking about over the last hour is um, I guess modalities that are part of um, the experiences that you hold with, with the draw out community. Can you tell us a little bit more about, about that organization? Yeah, um, it was spurred by um, two dear friends, um, Lauren Ryan and Bridget Reichert. And of all, you know, all good conversations start on the chairlift. (laughs) Um, Bridget works for Vans and also is a amazing yoga teacher. Um, Lauren is a breathwork practitioner and also does incredible um, marketing and media and advertisement for a company called Bloom. And I, on the side, I love cooking. It's one of my passions. I call it my love language. (laughs) Uh, It's also a nice balance between like the high intensity of snowboarding and then just a more like artistic, slow experience. And um we wanted to start holding retreats together and it just came together naturally um, to bring those three things together. And they, all three of them have helped all three of us and we see them as tools and pieces that have provided us a more space to be us and to hear those whispers of what we feel drawn to, what we need to work through. And we kind of call them the tools in our toolbox and, um, we wanted to create a space where a very approachable space, because a lot of these modalities, you know, they've been around for a long time and there's different levels from beginner to expert to master. And we wanted to create an environment where people felt welcomed to experience these things. And then from then we could support them into, you know, maybe further going down a deeper direction of yoga deeper direction of connecting with nature through surfing and we just really wanted to find a way um, to give back in the sense of sharing what we'd learned Um, I think that in this day and age a lot of us aren't I'm not in any way saying that we're an elder but I think that we've become disconnected from um, having mentors and having people to look up to and people sharing in a vulnerable and authentic way what they've been through and what helped them so that it can then empower others if they come up against a similar roadblock. So Mm. we just wanted to create this environment that was really fun too. Um, Because, you know, when you really want to dive deep into shadow work and releasing your traumas, like it's really heavy. And I think it's really important to remember 
um, how beautiful and fun life is too. And especially with, uh, um, I dare I say it, but just like the way that news is broadcasted or the things that are shared, it's like doomsday hype, you know, and a lot of people are living in these, these spaces of despair. And I think there's a lot of, of things to be joyful about. And just as much as we're here to grow and learn and work through that sticky stuff, we're here to have fun and joy. So that was what we were, that's our intention with the drought is come have fun with us, but have some tools to, you know, find your center when things get challenging as they will. <laughs> it's part of life. And, um, and then hopefully there's an integration piece of being able to do that on the daily as a, as a lifestyle. If, if one works for you and for someone else, it'll be something different. And um, yeah, moving forward, we're really excited. We have, we're starting to collaborate with other friends and teachers that we found incredibly inspi inspiring along the way. And um, I don't want to give too much away, but there's a lot of good stuff happening this coming year. Yeah, I can um, put a link to that in uh, the, the notes as well. I, I'm curious how, how do you balance um, the fun um, retreat side of it with also, while also holding space to allow for transformation, which is often not that that easy or not that let's say transformation can sometimes not be fun totally it's and i think that's that piece of comfort and discomfort um we do everything we can to hold incredibly intentional space for people to drop in as deep as they want to um that's why it's i think there's a difference between intentionality and and kind of being joking around and having fun, you know? There's a time to be intentional with what we're doing. And there's a time to go and play because play is also part of healing. It's a tool that I think that a lot of people have forgotten, you know, work, 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 get this thing done, move forward, da, 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 da. Um, and play is just, isn't a medicine as well in itself. Hmm. So, you know, if there's a breath work practice, uh, a deep transcendental one, everyone's we ask everyone to set an intention you know we're not dropping into it joking around we're dropping into it okay this is what i want to look at this is what i want to work through and then being really present through that practice and then creating a really safe environment container and community to share afterwards and then maybe in a couple hours we're going to have lunch and we're going to share and laugh over the, over food and table and you know, in the morning and I go surf and play in the ocean. So I think that's where the balance comes in. It's like, here's the space to drop in and, and look at what you want to look at. And then here's another space to like blow some steam off and have fun. <laughs> mm, I love that. I also think there's a miscommunication that like moving through challenges is always needs to be like awful and this like suffer fest, you know? Um, I think that we experience that in the mountains all the time, you know? Yeah. It's a, a slog sometimes getting up, getting up a mountain or, you know, expeditions or whatever. It's hard work, but on the other side of that, it's, it's why it's worth it. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is tough to put into, into words and it's an experience. Right. The, the last thing I, I wanted to, to, to chat about is we've talked about a lot of different, let's call it tra transformative modalities related to, to adventure. Um, the last thing that I think 
is really, really powerful is um, developing a relationship and contemplation of your own mortality. And that a large part of the culture we live in tries to escape or completely deny our own mortality. But in many ways, having a relationship with our own death is the way to feel most alive. Yeah, totally. Um, I believe it was an Alan Watts talk and he says that one of the greatest things that we can do is to contemplate our own death because it really catapults you in, into the space of being present and the contemplation of what's important to you and what matters. And I feel that when we're in that space, it's really easy to let go of all the little silly worries and cares that probably not important. <laughs> um, and when you spend time in the mountains and, and you have friends that spend time out there, loved ones and yeah, you, it is a numbers thing, right? You're susceptible yourself to a, some pretty dangerous environments and we lose a lot of friends out there. Um, there's a couple ways of thinking about it. Like, sure. I, I also jump on Instagram and see that people pass away from getting, you know, a really aggressive form of cancer and in two months they pass away or they get in a car accident. So there's one way of saying like, okay, well, thinking like, well, we could die at any moment. Why not? We should be doing what we love. And then there's this other thought process where like, I'm, it's exhausting watching and witnessing so many people pass away because it is a really, it's a dangerous place. But again and again, as that happens, it brings you to the space of contemplation. Why do we do what we do? Are we living in alignment with what we, what we want to be doing? Um, what really matters? Is it getting a nicer house or a car or, you know, investing so much time into working for those things that we're unable to be present for the people that we love, you know, our kids, our partners, our, um, our lifestyle. And I think it keeps you honest. <laughs> and I think that's another way of living in the present because tomorrow is not guaranteed, right? We don't know when any of us are going to go, but it's the only guarantee in life that we're all going. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think that when it's tragedy strikes, um, it really settles you into that space and, and it's awful, but I think it also opens people's hearts into what matters. Do you find in your own professional career that, um, I guess achieving, do you have any say goals or ambitions that you feel like also come with additional risk around? Yeah, totally. I really want to get into doing bigger expeditions. And I, a few days ago, my biggest mentor that I look up to passed away doing what she loved, you know, and it's like, 
one of my biggest mentors in the mountains passed away a couple years ago. And I'm like, there's part of me that's like, is it worth it? But personally, I am more fearful of having not lived a life in full fulfillment of what I'm drawn to from a heart standpoint than to live safely in the space because I'm scared of dying. Like mm-hmm. that to me is a, a death that I would never want to experience. And, and then what about, is it people in your life outs, outside of the culture where you have to reconcile with them about what you do? I'm super grateful that I, I don't really have that. <laughs> my, mm-hmm. my partner is a big wave surfer. He's mm-hmm. so aware of, of how that functions. And um, I'm really lucky to have a mother that I don't think that she's fully aware of how risky things are. So there's a little bit of unconsciousness with that, but she also just gets it. You know, she's like, She's almost died lots of times in her life without going in the mountains, without taking risk in that way. She likes to sew and knit, but she's had cancer a couple times. She's had like um, complications when she was trying to have a kid. She almost died a couple times. You know, it's like, you know, you got to do what brings you joy. And for some of us, that might feel a little bit riskier than others. Um, but I think it's more important to be living with, with on your path and on your purpose Mm, i absolutely agree that's beautiful well we've covered a lot taylor i'm I'm curious and (laughs) on the the subject of i guess deeper lessons we we learn from the outdoors is there anything else you'd like to share any anywhere else you'd like to go with it oh deeper lessons from the outdoors there's so many um i think that we've kind of covered it but and just because it of the time that we're in right now of of grieving the loss of of uh, a really amazing mentor mother athlete teacher like human being um hillary nelson is like looking at the way that that she lived and what she gathered from the mountains and it just the importance to live and the importance to take risk and to live outside of our comfort zone and that the mountains have taught me that. Um, and also personally, just the importance of taking care of these places that we love and giving a voice to something that we don't all hear. Um, and now more than ever, I feel like we're becoming disconnected from nature and, and we're seeing the ramifications of that. And the more time that people spend surfing and in the mountains as I know everyone gets frustrated it's getting busier but we need that we need people to see what why it's worth taking care of something and not just from like a a selfish standpoint of like well if if all the snow goes we can't snowboard it's like no there's like bigger things at play here like the glaciers are receding you know it impacts water how gears made you know that impacts the environment and we just need to start checking in and cluing in that what we do has a tremendous effort so it's best that we start making a more conscious positive one mm. is there any tips that you have for how we can make the time that we spend in the outdoors that little bit more intentional that little bit more magical 
I think um, it comes back down to a lot of topics that we've covered is learning to be present. And that it's not just in the mountains, it's in our day-to-day life. Like when you're hanging out with your partner, are you on your phone? When you're talking to people, are you engaged? Are you looking them in the eye? Um, when you're eating, are you scarfing down something with a bunch of random chemicals in it because it was convenient at fast? Um, you know, what kind of music are you are you bringing in? What shows are you watching? What are you feeding your subconscious? Um, I think just really coming back to the present moment and everything that we do, there's so much magic happening around us from, you know, I think we see it and we're reminded when people start having kids is like, oh my gosh, the first step. Imagine you missed the first step because you were on Instagram. <laughs> like, I, It's just such a blatant, like obvious one, but like I notice all, I have a lot of friends that are having kids right now and just how present they are with them you know, but why aren't we being that present in everything that we do, right? Like, why are we sitting out in the ocean thinking about what we're going to have for dinner when it's like, wow, look at the birds flying, look at the colors of the water. It's like, that adds to the experience. Um, I had a friend recently asked like, oh, what's your, what was your favorite wave you can remember? And it's like, when you really think about it, it's not the wave. It's like, usually the energy of the space you're in whether you're with a community of people that you wanted to share that moment with or you were so far away that you were just in nature with like one other person that I feel like that is the magic right we just give so much attention to this like you know the one line or the one wave or like it is really all these cliche sayings that our parents used to say that used to drive us nuts are so true (laughs) you know it's about the journey it's the moments in between and we also see that at the draw too. And I personally experience it when I go to wellness retreats. Yeah. There's the thing that you went to at the retreat, but it's the conversations in the middle, you know, it's these interactions. Mm. So we don't need to just be present when we're dropping into a line. It's like be present when you're hanging out with your friends, putting the boot back in, right. Being present, paddling out. It's so well said because it, because you can't feel that that deeper energy the magic unless you're deeply present you know i think that's so well said i mean have you ever witnessed being out in the surf and someone's kind of like freaking out at everybody and just kind of in a shit mood and you're like wow is this even fun for you (laughs) really missing the whole premise of of the experience you know Mm. yeah there's a lot of magic left in the world and i guess that's one thing i want to leave is like it's so easy to get stuck in these loops of despair is like, especially, and I notice it with people that are heavy in the activist activist roles and like standing up for nature and standing up for these things. is like, it's disheartening because the more you learn, you're like, Oh my gosh, that's what happens to our food. Oh my gosh. This is how many pharmaceuticals, this is how much they cost. You know, this is the degradation of this land. And it's just like, Whoa, it's heavy. Um, but we can't act from a place like that. Um, We have to have hope for a better future and um, you can't just pray. You need to take action and, you know, set intentions and and do them. But we have to also come from like a place of joy that this is an amazing place that we live in. This planet is amazing. And if we want any change to happen, we have to have, we have to be living from that place. Otherwise, 
I don't know if it's possible. <laughs> I absolutely agree. Well, Taylor, this has been such a pleasure to to chat to you. It's um, it's clear that uh, you, you have a very strong practice um, that that balances your your profession, and uh, not only that, but you're also incredibly articulate at putting that practice and and the magic that comes from it into words. So, thank you oh, so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It was fun. Um, I love talking about this stuff, and um, yeah. Thank Where you. can I send people who want to uh, learn more about what you do and, and what oh, you put on? Um, Instagram, um, Taylor Godber, and my website's Create Travel Inspire. There's a little bit of information there, and I've been uploading some recipes if people want some healthy, easy-to-make plant-based recipes up there too. Um, and then thedrawout.com for retreats. And, Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Taylor. Okay. Thank you, Tim. Have a wonderful day. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Mountain Whispers. There's an awful lot of really great listening content out there. So it means a lot that you chose this and listened to the end. You can find links uh, in in the show notes here. Uh, I've included a link to our Breath Collective, which... uh, she mentions Breath by James Nestor, as well as where you can find more of Taylor through Instagram, her website, and also the community reference called The Drawout. If you enjoyed this episode, please do the thing of subscribe, rate on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all that stuff, or even more importantly, share it with a friend who you think would get value out of this. You can expect another episode every second Thursday also um if you want to reach out to me my instagram is in the link as well awesome take care until next time cheers